Congressman Adam Schiff, Space Geek, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. The Honorable Adam Schiff joins us to talk about his fascination with space. He'll also give us his vision for the future of NASA. And we'll talk about commercial space development and space as an opening for bipartisan collaboration in the United States. Did you hear about our interstellar visitor? The fast-moving rock dominates Bruce Betts' attention in this week's What's Up segment. Planetary Society digital editor Jason Davis is back from a visit to the Mirror Lab at the University of Arizona campus in his hometown of Tucson. The work of that facility is an essential step in the creation of what will soon become the largest and most powerful telescope on planet Earth. Jason, welcome back to the show. I I want to start by saying how intensely envious I am because I would love to go to that lab at the University of Arizona and see what you saw. Tell us. uh, Tell us what you saw. Matt, you're always welcome here in Tucson. My uh, my door is open. Uh, Thank you, sir. Anyway, <laughs> this was the fifth mirror being cast for the giant Magellan Telescope. They had just started the casting process the weekend before, and they spin cast these things. So they, they essentially build the mirror in a giant oven and then spin the oven. And as the glass melts, it kind of flattens out into the parabolic shape that you need for the telescope mirror. So we got to go uh, as part of this media tour, uh, go see the uh, the actual casting process going on. And it's, it's really neat to see. I am going to make it there at some point because I keep <laughs> passing up invitations. Uh, tell me, what's it like? Could you feel the heat from this massive oven? No, you couldn't really feel it. They have exhaust ports on the top. So I, I suspect that, um, you know, the warmth of it really isn't radiating out to where you're standing. Uh, but you do kind of get to walk right up to it. You know, it's spinning. I can't remember the revolution rate, but um, it starts off very hot and kind of peaks um, very quickly at several thousand degrees and then starts cooling gradually and actually takes about three months to cool. So that thing will be right now and continuing to cool down for um, a couple more months. No, it isn't. It isn't a very hot environment where it is. They managed to kind of keep it all insulated inside the oven. It's still quite an impressive technological trick. What's the outlook? When is this big scope going to see first light? Yeah, just like uh, a lot of other large projects, the um, the completion date has slipped a little bit. But right now they're looking at 2023 when the telescope will partially come online. So they'll, they'll have a few mirrors in place, not all of them. And uh, they should be able to start getting some preliminary science results then and then kind of testing it out. What are you most looking forward to uh, that they'll be pointing this at? Yeah, so definitely uh, exoplanets. I mean, when these scientists talk about some of the things they'll be able to do with it, uh, actually looking at an exoplanet next to a star and being able to parse out um, the signs uh, of what is actually the composition of their atmospheres. And that to me is just kind of mind blowing. We can do that now to a certain extent, but only with certain planets, especially the really large ones, I think are the easiest um, that they're able to do this with. But we're talking about actual earth size exoplanets in the habitable zone right next to a star from our perspective. So it really excites me that, you know, this thing might come online and then report back to us, hey, I we're seeing signs of uh, photosynthesis or something like that in a um, in another planet's atmosphere. So really cool. It's a date. You and me, 2023 in the Atacama or high above yeah. it uh, to, uh, for the uh, opening of this, uh, what will be, at least for a little bit, the uh, by far the largest telescope on this planet. Thank you very Thanks, much. Matt. 
That's Jason Davis, digital editor for the Planetary Society. The piece we were just talking about is um, a November 10, 2017 blog entry that you can find at planetary.org. As listeners to our monthly Space Policy Edition know so well, most of the really important decisions made about the future of American space exploration are made in Washington, D.C. Congressman Adam Schiff is the Democrat who has represented California's 28th district for 17 years. It's not by chance that he has been one of those at the center of space policy creation, though he is deeply involved with other efforts, including his service as ranking member of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, you're about to hear that a good part of his heart and soul belong to science and space. The congressman joined me from his Washington office a few days ago for a somewhat staticky Skype conversation. Congressman Adam Schiff, thank you very much for joining us on Planetary Radio. It's terrific to be with you. Your official bio talks about your enthusiasm for, for science and uh, for space exploration. I, I wonder, is it is it uh, fair? Is it going too far to to call you a bit of a space and science geek? Uh, no, that doesn't go uh, too far at all. And interestingly, um, I'm currently on a leave from the Appropriations Committee, but I'm the senior most member on the subcommittee that funds NASA. And the chairman, John Culberson, is equally, if not a greater space nerd than I am. So you get two space nerds in a key uh, committee position. And I, I think it started probably for me in middle school or high school. I just had a keen interest uh, in science, but uh, particularly in space science, and that grew in college. I had a wonderful physics professor at Stanford. It was the one course uh, that I had in college that every day I'd walk out, I felt like I needed to grab people off the street and tell them what I had just learned because it was so uh, mind-shattering. It's the only class I had in college where I can remember individual lectures. I remember learning about Hubble's constant the first time, and I remember how the professor uh, described it and how if you uh, looked about you and you would be tempted to conclude that we're at the center of the universe because everything was moving away from us. But it was more like having uh, spots on a balloon that you're inflating. Everything is moving away from everything else. Uh, but by figuring out the rate of acceleration of distant objects, uh, you could figure out where those all came from, where the Big Bang took place and when. And that was just uh, like a revelation that I thought was so interesting and so fascinating. Uh, and that has stayed with me for life. And for years, every time I would meet with people from Caltech or JPL, I would talk about this class and how I really need to tell this professor what a lasting impact his, his class had. Uh, but it meant going down into the basement and digging through boxes to find out who this professor was because I didn't remember his name. Yeah. I finally did it. I'll have you know. Two years ago, I finally did it. I found his name uh, as a professor named William Little. Uh, is now an emeritus professor at Stanford. And I wrote him a very long email uh, about how much I continue to think about his class and what a lasting impact it's had and how uh, you know he gave me some of the rudiments I need to be able to represent such brilliant people in my district at Caltech and JPL and the Planetary Society. And then I waited for the reply. And it never came. Uh, not for an entire year. And then he, I finally got a reply from him that began with an apology saying that he never checks the Stanford email anymore. <laughs> and, uh, but he finally did, and uh, he was very, very moved to get my letter. I would guess that uh, he's probably pretty proud to have had that kind of influence over someone who now has no small influence over the uh, science 
and Space Policy of the United States. You must be particularly pleased to have the Jet Propulsion Lab within your district. Oh, I, I really am. Um, and every time I meet with the brilliant people there, I continue. Uh, I view it as a part of my lifelong learning uh, PhD program. So I can ask them about something <laughs> that has just been discovered. You know, the, the the work of LIGO, for example, which I find totally fascinating. Uh, or maybe I've read an article on dark matter or dark energy, which are two of my favorite topics. And I'll get to quiz them about, you know, how can this be and what does this tell us and uh, does this mean Einstein was right? Does it mean he was wrong? Does it mean that something he later thought was wrong turned out to be right? Uh, so it, it's such a treat to represent them and to hear about the fantastic work they're doing. I'll tell you one other pet area that I'm really fascinated by, and that is the issue of quantum entanglement, hmm. um, which I think is inherently so interesting, but also given my intel responsibilities the idea of being able to communicate from one place to another without anything uh, you know, appearing to go from one place to the other uh, means that you can't have something intercepted or decrypted. It would be the ultimate form of clandestine communication. So it has a very practical interest, but, but just the whole idea of it, uh, that you could have somehow information communicated uh, faster than the speed of light, I, I think it's so incredibly interesting. Yeah, who would have guessed that what Einstein called spooky action at a distance would someday have strategic importance uh, for uh, nations like ours and, and apparently China, which is doing a lot of work in that area? Yes. Uh, I mean, the, you know, the practical impacts could be significant, uh, but just the whole uh, degree to which it challenges the way we understand things and limits that we thought were fixed. I, I love things that provoke our, our thought that way. Back to JPL. We just celebrated and to some degree mourned the uh, the loss, the planned loss of the, the Cassini spacecraft after all those years of exploring Saturn. Uh, we had, I don't know if you heard, we had a tremendous turnout, standing room only, in uh, Caltech's biggest auditorium uh, to celebrate the end of that mission. Uh, we did it in conjunction with KPCC, the, the local public radio station. That kind of enthusiasm that people have and the long string of successes that the JPL has enjoyed, how does that fit into what you see as the success, the overall success of uh, the United States in, in space exploration? Well, it's so uh, exhilarating to watch these missions. Uh, some have the vantage point of seeing them launched uh, and then their ultimate fiery end. Uh, and then there are many of us uh, who have, have come to understand and appreciate what they're doing sort of mid-flight uh, and have treasured the images that have come back and discoveries that have come back. And it, it gives a great sense of pride that we were uh, a part of this, that we were able to accomplish these incredible scientific feats. Uh, it's also some of the most profoundly positive diplomacy we have around the world. I remember years ago being in Pakistan, uh, and there's not much that we do, frankly, that is viewed with favor by Pakistanis. Hmm. But it was uh, at the time of the um, the Phoenix uh, program, and people were riveted. It was the top of the news. It was the front page of the newspapers in Pakistan. And I remember thinking that this is one of the completely unmitigated positives that the U.S. has to offer. Uh, unrivaled uh, excellence in science and space exploration uh, and things of keen interest all over the world. It's great diplomacy, and that's, uh, I think, an underappreciated uh, facet of our space program. 
What are your thoughts about the at least the near-term future for, we'll stick with robotic exploration for the time being. Of course, we've got the the 2020 rover still being uh, pieced together at uh, at JPL, but there are some other major projects like the James Webb Space Telescope uh, and others. You know, I think prospects are good. We're very lucky to have deep bipartisan support for space exploration, for robotic exploration. Uh, we have great champions uh, like my friend John Culberson uh, that are so important in, in the era when non-defense discretionary spending is constantly under assault. Uh, NASA has pretty well survived the budget turmoil of the last uh, five or ten years. That's a remarkable tribute to uh, the degree to which on both sides of the aisle people just love and respect this work and value it uh, and recognize all the economic innovation that comes out of it and the degree to which that helped power our economy as well as lifting our understanding of our place in the universe. Uh, so I think the future is bright. Uh, I have to say I was you know, deeply discouraged uh, during the last administration to hear our administrators say that basically we were no longer going to be in the flagship mission business. Uh, I don't think we should ever uh, diminish our sights and decide that, no, we're not capable of doing the big things anymore. Yes, we have to be cost conscious, uh, but I think NASA should be all about doing those things that are, are hard and undoable by the private sector working alone because the financial incentives are not enough uh, in the private sector. So I want to continue to see NASA doing big things, proposing big things, uh, learning uh, new big things. And uh, at the same time, well, we launch a, a great many more cost-effective um, or smaller-scale missions. Stay with us. There's much more ahead as my conversation with California Congressman Adam Schiff continues. This is Planetary Radio. Hi, this is Casey Dreyer, the Director of Space Policy here at the Planetary Society. And I wanted to let you know that right now Congress is debating the future of NASA's budget. The House has proposed to increase NASA's budget and also increase planetary science in 2018. The Senate, however, has proposed to cut both. You can make your voice heard right now. We've made it easy to learn more if you go to planetary.org slash petition2017. Thank you. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan, returning to my recent Skype conversation with the Honorable Adam Schiff, Congressman for California's 28th District. That district includes the Jet Propulsion Laboratory just outside Pasadena, California, There are many congressional representatives whose districts are homes to NASA or other space facilities and interests. One is a conservative Republican who represents much of Houston, home to the Johnson Space Center. You've mentioned your colleague John Culberson twice now, and he's also been a guest on this show. My guess is that uh, outside of space... The two of you may not agree on too many issues. Uh, am, am I naive to think that space provides a little bit of a, a bridge and may offer a little bit of hope for a country that uh, is so seriously divided right now? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, John and, uh, and my friendship is a perfect illustration of that. We came to Congress together. We got to know each other. Our families got to know each other. We found that we had this common interest in both history and science, and in particular space science. And we continue to marvel at, notwithstanding the fact we have very serious policy disagreements about other things, how much we have in common. Uh, we, you know, we were uh, laughing uh, a couple of years ago when 
my wife and I were in New York, and one of our favorite outings is to the Strand Bookstore. I, I seldom get much beyond the first a couple dozen feet because they have all these wonderful staff recommendations. <laughs> so I spent about an hour, only about 10 feet from the door. But on the third floor, there's a rare book collection, uh, which I'm I, not in the price range where I can afford, but I like to kind of look about anyway. So uh, we take the elevator up to the third floor, and the door's open, and who do I find but John Culberson, <laughs> um, who has a similar love of the Strand Bookstore and whatnot. So I, I think that part of getting things done and being effective in Congress is uh, looking for those areas of common agreement and common interest and focusing on those rather than spending all your time focusing on the areas that divide. Uh, and, and to uh, our great good fortune, uh, there are people on both sides of the aisle who are really committed to space science and, uh, and pushing the boundaries of our knowledge. We just saw the first meeting of the reorganized uh, National Space Council. Uh, we heard uh, some people, uh, Vice President Pence, the leader of, the, of that uh, council uh, among them, talk about uh, the United States having lost its lead in space. And I, I wonder if you think there's anything to that. Uh, well, you know, to the degree that we began to dim our horizons in terms of doing the big missions, and uh, we decided it was uh, more cost-effective if we didn't do them, uh, if we let the European Space Agency or Maybe we worked in partnership, uh, but we gave up a leadership role. Uh, you know, that did concern me. Um, I don't know in particular what the vice president was speaking about. You know, the, the administration, I will say, has in not just in, in science, but really almost in every endeavor, sought to diminish the accomplishments of the previous administration uh, and has, has tried to eradicate the legacy of the prior administration. Um, so whether this was merely along those lines of the vice president saying how terrible things were before the new administration came into office, I don't know. Uh, but but as I mentioned, I you know I have been concerned that we were not making the uh, investment that we needed to, that we were lowering our sights as a result of budgetary pressures, uh, and I just don't want to see us. Uh, ever decide that uh, we as a nation are not capable of doing the kind of things that we have in the past. We heard a lot of support uh, in that first meeting of the National Space Council and, of course, uh, elsewhere for uh, the developments in co what's commonly known as commercial space, both from the old line aerospace companies and from the so-called new space companies. I, and I wonder what your, your thoughts are about that and uh, the successes and, and the setbacks that we've seen. You know, I think the private sector has a great deal to offer, and uh, what has been done, done commercially over the last several years, I think, is really uh, fantastic, and, and some of the developments have been quite phenomenal, and some of the, these new upstarts uh, have really um, shaken up the competition in, I think, a productive way. Uh, we had, I think, too few companies operating in this area, too little competition, and that's changing. And given the barriers to entry uh, over cost, um, it's quite a marvel that we have as many new entrants uh, in the market as we have. So that's all positive. Uh, it also, uh, I think, frees NASA to do the really big and hard things. And so that may be a very good division of labor. I want to make sure, though, that we're not going to cannibalize uh, the public mm -hmm. aspects of NASA um, because they're not as well represented in the lobbyist corps as private industry. And there's always a danger of that. So we need there to be firm advocates for the public role and the public commission in this. I think a good test of sort of the role of the public 
sector versus the private sector um, goes back to something Lincoln said about the role of government uh, as being government ought to do what the private uh, individual cannot do on their own or as well. Uh, and I think there's a great deal that the private sector cannot do alone or as well, uh, that it really needs uh, the public investment uh, and getting to some of these hard to reach places uh, like Europa, for example, uh, is a good illustration of what the government should be focused on and sample return, uh, these high mm -hmm. priorities of the decadal survey uh, that are just not economic and, and wouldn't pencil out as a commercial venture. As we speak, your colleague Jim Bridenstein, Bridenstein, I think, seems to be headed toward becoming the next administrator of NASA. You know, whether it's him or, or some other individual, what advice would you give to the person who becomes the head of, of that internationally renowned agency? I, I suppose uh, I, I would, uh, first of all, uh, congratulate them on having the opportunity to administer one of the crown jewels uh, in terms of all of our public agencies. Uh, and, and if they don't come out of uh, the industry or the agency uh, to really get to know the workforce and spend time uh, with people on the ground and those that are running the labs and those that are doing the work and understand uh, the tremendous service they're providing the country and how to be a good advocate for them. And, uh, and of course, to focus on the big picture, uh, where we want to be 10 years from now and how we get there. And I guess the other thing I would, would say is a good jumping off point for the prioritization of NASA's work is looking at those decadal surveys. Look at what the experts have to say about where the priorities should be uh, and let that guide you uh, to developing a, a workable plan uh, to get us uh, to those places and get us those uh, answers to those really intriguing questions. The big mission on the horizon, at least the big robotic mission that uh, we haven't talked about yet, is, of course, one that your your friend and colleague, John Culberson, has uh, fought hard for. And that's the uh, the mission uh, known as the Europa Clipper, I think, officially now. I think he's also pushed for uh, a Europa Lander, which uh, there has been some legislative push for. Is that also one that uh, you're looking forward to? And, and if so, why? Uh, yes, absolutely. You know, I, I think what is so intriguing to people all over the earth is to figure out, are we alone? Uh, or is there life elsewhere out there? Europa is one of the best candidates for us to find evidence of life elsewhere. And I think it's intriguing to people. It's a new destination. And we always have to keep in mind the need to continue to intrigue the public about what we might find uh, to um, satisfy the, the intellectual curiosity uh, of the American people. I think Mars uh, sample return is very important uh, scientifically, but I do think people are looking for new horizons uh, and they want to go beyond Mars. And Europa, I think, offers uh, a really attractive new destination, uh, Titan as well. And I, I think the fact that scientists think that these are some of the best candidates uh, for finding life uh, and for making scientific breakthroughs, and the fact that they're the most intriguing to the public are a good guide of where we ought to go. How important is it that we leave human footsteps on Mars, as we have on the moon, and, and actually might be uh, returning to leave them again on the moon? I think it's very important. Um, and, you know, I know that people uh, suggest, you know, why... 
why do we continue to push these really hard human missions um, when it's more cost-effective, less risky to use robots? Part of this, though, is not just about what's most effective or efficient. Uh, part of this is also about the human spirit of discovery and uh, wanting to go places that, uh, that we haven't been. So I think part of what helps us drive support for this is the idea that one day people will be walking on that little uh, light in the night sky. So gathering the information necessary to make that happen, uh, I think, is part of the journey to continue to, to push the frontiers of our knowledge. Uh, and I know is of great interest and excitement to people, and it's a job worth doing. Ever want to get up there yourself? Uh, not necessarily to Mars or the moon, but uh, let's say low Earth orbit. I mean, you've had a few colleagues achieve that. Uh, you know, this is amazing to me, and maybe it's a sign of how much things have changed in Congress. It's amazing to me that you had people in Congress who were not astronauts, but were the chairs of various committees, get to go to space. The, that's the ultimate congressional uh, trip, I suppose. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think those days are ever coming back. Um, and I don't think I'll ever be able to afford one of the private trips. But, you know, walking across the street to the Smithsonian and seeing that tiny capsule that John Glenn was in, if I didn't have claustrophobia before, uh, gave me enough just looking at it where uh, I'm not sure that I'd want to climb inside something like that. It's wonderful meeting people who do and uh, being able to talk with them about sitting on top of that candle when it's lit. I remember asking one astronaut uh, about their experiences when the, the launches are scrubbed and what's that like and how do you know when it's not going to get scrubbed? Uh, and he said, well, when they, they light the solid fuel, you know you're going somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that's true. Congressman, thank you very much for uh, joining us on Planetary Radio and for your enthusiastic support of uh, space exploration and the sciences. And uh, I'm sure that's something that's going to remain a, a high priority for you, not just because you have JPL in the district, but because of your, your obvious personal enthusiasm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thanks uh, so much for all the great work of the Planetary Society and uh, helping to keep uh, public interest and public support uh, for uh, NASA and all of its fantastic missions alive and well. Um, really appreciate uh, your good work as well. That is uh, much appreciated. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff, who represents California's 28th district. He's in his, I believe, the ninth uh, term there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Long time representing that district, which includes, as you've heard, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, the sort of capital city for uh, robotic exploration of our solar system and beyond. And he's uh, been talking to us from uh, his office in the capital of the United States, Washington, D.C. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts is the Director of Science and Technology for the Planetary Society, who has been doing this with me now. I think we are at the 15th anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Uh, technically, we are uh, about 10 to 12 days before the anniversary. You always keep better track than me. No, I just looked it up recently because I realized we were coming up on it. So congratulations, <laughs> Matt, on an outstanding show for 15 years. Thank you. We, we heard from a listener, and I'm sorry I don't have his name, who said that he's seen so many really great podcasts come and go, and uh, he's glad that they can count on us. Let's hope that he can continue to do that for, for much longer. Uh, and that uh, the two of us will be doing this segment for much longer. Yay. 
Tell us about that beautiful night sky. All right. In the evening sky, we've got Saturn looking yellowish in the southwest, but it's the pre-dawn where things are still popping. Venus and Jupiter, if you pick this up right after it comes out, you might still see Venus and Jupiter low in the pre-dawn east. Venus is going to set head towards uh, the sun as seen from Earth, but Jupiter will keep getting higher over the coming weeks. So bright Jupiter will be coming up in the pre-dawn east, and we've got Mars above it looking reddish. Mars, over the next few weeks, with its reddish color, will be headed closer in the sky to the bluish star Spica, so they'll make a fun pair over the next few weeks, and Jupiter will keep coming up and getting closer to Mars as time goes on. My uh, compliments to everybody who uh, saw that beautiful conjunction, which took place uh, this morning as yes. we speak, I, right? I, of course, was uh, fast asleep in bed. I was hoping to see it through my eyelids and through the house <laughs> and through my pillow, but it didn't happen. But I hope other people saw it because I... I'm sure it was lovely. I'm sure they'll let us know, yeah. too. On to this week in space history is 1969, Atollo 12 executed the second landing of humans on the moon. One year later, 1970, this week, Lunacod 1 became the first wheeled vehicle to operate on another world. It's easy for you, Dave. Uh, yeah. All right, we move on to... Random space fact, or not a random space fact. I don't, I don't know why I was Scottish. Were you watching Outlander, maybe? I mean, that's a, that's a regular thing on Sunday nights at my house. Yeah, and they were doing a, a scene from Hamlet. It was, it was odd. Oh, wait. I think I dreamed <laughs> that as well. Never mind. So we're going to talk later about the, the interesting naming that's gone on with the first uh, known example of an interstellar asteroid. Wamwamwa. <laughs> Uh, but let me tell you a little bit about it. It uh, appeared to come roughly from the direction of the star Vega a few weeks ago when it was discovered in the constellation Lyra. had a hyperbolic excess velocity of 26 kilometers per second with respect to the sun. Once it uh, heads away from the sun, it'll slow down to that 26 kilometers per, per second. It reached a peak speed of 87.7 kilometers per second as it zipped by at perihelion, closest point to the sun. And uh, the direction it came from is close to the so-called solar apex, which is the direction within, our, not within the galaxy as a whole, but within our local group of stars, the direction the sun is moving. So it's the mosquito hitting your windshield from our movement through the local group of stars. So that uh, that is even, that is also very consistent within interstellar object. Let's go on to finding out uh, how many of our listeners, uh, and which listener in particular, got the name right for that new object. All right. Uh, the question was, <laughs> what is the designation of the first observed interstellar asteroid detected coming through our solar system in October 2017? They kind of renamed it halfway through <laughs> the contest. So we'll be happy to take the, uh, and it already had been renamed one, so we'll at least take the second and third names as correct, depending on when you entered. Uh, the International Astronomical Union, the IAU, did a pretty much unprecedented approval of a name uh, in terms of how quickly they did it. It usually takes months or years for objects to be named. This took weeks. How do we do, Matt, with all of those caveats? Uh, we got a very nice response, and uh, this uh, bit of condolences or sympathy from Dana Lynn Barnett in Haifa, Israel. 
pretty sneaky of the IAU to change the designation during the trivia contest. Why do they have it in for us? No, what's up with that? Our winner, and he was one of the people, one of the many, who came up with what ended up as the middle name, the second of three names for uh, this object. It's Dean Brammer, a first-time winner, I think, Hagerstown, Maryland, although we've heard from him before. He uh, says, loves the show, keep up the great work, and he said... That at least for a few days, the name of that object was A slash 2017 U1. Was that he correct, correct for a while? That was correct for a while. Congratulations, Dean. You are going to be receiving a Planetary Society t-shirt designed and sold by a Chop Shop. That's a chopshopstore.com, where the Society has a store of its own. And a 200-point itelescope.net astronomy account. More about that in a moment. We had a bunch of other good stuff, of course. Michael Sarchet in Seattle, Washington, uh, he had uh, that middle answer as well. He uh, wanted us to give kudos to ast- astronomer Rob Warrick, who was the first to recognize that moving uh, object in a, the nightly Pan-STARRS sky survey on uh, October 19th. Mel Powell, a regular listener, wants to know which extrasolar planetary system is throwing rocks at us. This is not okay. <laughs> yeah. People have been trying to figure that out, but uh, it's a little tough to nail it down exactly. Finally, Nathan Hunter from Portland, Oregon, and I love this. He said his first thought when he heard about it was uh, Rama, the Arthur C. Clarke uh, sort of world ship from Rendezvous with Rama, but it's about 100 times too small at uh, somewhere between 160 meters and 16 kilometers. But good guess, though, Nathan. Maybe maybe next one of these uh, will uh, be right out of uh, Arthur's imagination. Just want to clarify that they did indeed, uh, the IAU renamed it 1I, I being a new designation inter- <laughs> indicating an interstellar object as opposed to A used for asteroids that were first found as C, comets. Whew. And then they gave it the Hawaiian, used the Hawaiian language to create the name Wamwamwa. Wamwamwa. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just really enjoyed that. Sounds like my 18-month-old uh, grandchild. <laughs> your daughter uh, named I, I your grandchild Wamwamwa? No, no, but he calls her uh, oh, something oh, like that. Oh, that makes so much more sense. Kind of means reaching out for first advance. It's kind of like the first scout coming to um, scout our solar system. But it, as far as we know, it's just a rock. It's, it's not Rama. Well, if it changes its course, maybe there'll be a new classification of FS, Flying Saucer. Or oh, no, such. don't go starting that again. Speaking of wah-wah-wah, what is the orbital eccentricity of the interstellar asteroid 1I, wah-wah-wah? Orbital eccentricity defines orbital conic section type orbits. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. And you have until the 22nd, Wednesday, November 22nd, the day before Thanksgiving here in the USA, at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us your answer to this one and win yourself a Planetary Society t-shirt, that uh, really beautiful Venn diagram design from chopshopstore.com, and a 200-point itelescope.net account. That's uh, worth a couple hundred dollars American and uh, can be used on that international nonprofit network of telescopes all over our planet. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about what George Harrison's song most reminds you of. (laughs) Thank you, and good night. All things must pass. The sun. Uh, <laughs> well, well played, sir. Thank you, sir. That's Bruce Betts. He is the director of science and technology for the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up. 
Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its bipartisan members. Daniel Gunn is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan. Clear skies. Clear skies.